Well, we're looking at the last lesson today from Making Peace. And I just want to, if I can, first organize my little area up here. I got too much stuff. Uh, the first thing I want to do is just give a brief review of where, we begin, where we've been before we discuss uh, the last items um, on making peace. And you'll see on page two that we started with staying on top of conflict. And we've seen this uh, diagram several times throughout the lesson that refer to a, a variety of responses that we can have to conflict. And we, we usually respond in one of two ways. There are escape responses and there are attack responses. I don't know what the breakdown here um, is between escape and attack responses. But some people are just, some people just hate confrontation. Um, and they will do literally anything to avoid confrontation. And I do not happen to be one of those people. <laughs> But um, some people will do anything they can to avoid And I, I would venture to say that a lot of you are that way. You hate it, and so you don't like to bring it up. You don't like to talk about it. You don't like to go to that person. And so you exhibit a variety of escape responses. And there are some people that you probably know who have spent the entirety of their lives running from conflict. They have conflict at a church. What do they do? Find another one. They have conflict with their spouse. What do they do? They find another one. They have conflict at their job. What do they do? They find another one. And they move from place to place to place to place thinking that conflict is something that's entirely outside of them. Conflict is all the people that I have had the misfortune to have in my life that have screwed it up. And so the people that I work with are idiots, my spouse is an idiot, and the people that I go to church with are idiots, and rather than talk to them about that and find out what's going on, rather than than try to work it out, we run away. That's the escape response. Then there's the attack response. And these are the people that you have in your life, and I bet you're thinking of certain people like this who are constantly at odds with everyone around them. They are a walking turmoil machine. Okay? They have conflict everywhere they go, and they're constantly dealing with it in a harsh and negative way. And so these kinds of people tend to alienate everyone around them. And so they go through marriages and churches and jobs just like the other side does, but they go through them for different reasons. They go through them because they're too abrasive. Obviously, neither of these are proper responses. And if you look at page four, page four, it really contains the cornerstone of what these series of lessons has been about. The cornerstone of what these lessons have has been about is the gospel. You see, in the first paragraph of chapter four, it says that the gospel is the key to peace. It goes on to say, a true peacemaker is guided, motivated, and empowered by the gospel, the good news that God has forgiven all our sins and made peace with us through the death and resurrection of his son. So obviously you've come to, you've come to a church to talk about this. And so you're getting the church answer. But we believe that the church answer is the answer. That's not to say that the secular answers that you, that you may have heard of and be familiar with and have offered aren't 
capable of diffusing tension, mediating, creating peace, but they can't do so in an ultimate way, the way the gospel does. Okay? They may be able to, for a period of time, alleviate tensions in a situation, but they don't, they don't ultimately fix the problem. Because the big problem, as we've been noting, whenever there's conflict, the big problem is not the situation, it's the people in the situation. And more specifically, the big problem in any conflict is in here. It's my heart. It's your heart. And your heart is out of the reach of any technique or mediator that lives today. A technique or a mediator can't change your heart. The only thing that can change your heart is the gospel of Jesus. And so what we have to see in the air, when it comes to conflict is that for us to truly deal with the conflict that's in our lives and in our hearts and with the people around us, we first have to see that there is a bigger area of conflict that needs to be dealt with. And that is the conflict that, we, that exists between me and God. The gospel solves the biggest conflict that you will ever face. Because in spite of the fact that you and I may have conflict with our spouses or with our family or with our children or in relationships or in our works or any of those places, in spite of the fact that we might have conflict there, that is not our biggest problem. Our biggest problem is the fact that we have conflict with the holy God. God created humanity to, to love and to serve him and to be happy forever in him, and we have rebelled against that. And so the Bible tells us in places like Ephesians 2 that we are, by nature, objects of God's wrath. You are, I am, by nature and by action, objects of God's wrath. And the gospel of Jesus Christ solves the biggest conflict problem that you have. Because the biggest conflict problem that you have is that you are deserving of God's wrath and that you will spend an eternity suffering that wrath if God does not intervene. And the good news that God is that God has intervened in Christ. Jesus Christ lived a perfect life because you haven't. And Jesus died a death that you deserve to die. Jesus had God, the Father, turn his back on him so that you would never have to experience God turning his back on you. That is the biggest point of conflict that you will ever face. And for those who have come and accepted the gospel, that point of conflict has been removed. But the gospel also helps us in our day-to-day relationships. And this paragraph that we just read from, in the middle of the paragraph, the last sentence is, through Christ... He has also enabled us to break the habit of escaping from conflict or attacking others, and he has empowered us to become peacemakers who can promote genuine justice and reconciliation. Not only does the gospel fix the God problem, the gospel fixes the horizontal problem because you are now equipped with new ability. The gospel doesn't just remove the sentence of death the sentence of punishment that is on you, the gospel gives you new ability by the spirit who is residing within you. You see, for anyone to truly love and serve and obey God, God must first do a work of the spirit in their heart. Okay, we call that regeneration. 
Regeneration is a fancy way of talking about new life. The Bible says that at one point in your life, before you came to Christ, you had a heart of stone. And through the work of the Spirit, that heart of stone can be given life. And you can be given a heart of flesh. And Romans chapter 5 talks about the fact that sin doesn't have to rule you anymore. And the conflict that you feel so deeply and the anger that you have and the bitterness that you've harbored doesn't need to rule your life. It doesn't have to rule your life. Because you have the Spirit now. You have new power and you have new ability both to, both to face conflict both to ask forgiveness when you have created the conflict and to grant forgiveness when you have been wronged. Because let's face it, some of you in this room have been deeply wronged. And there is no way that we would, that we would attempt to varnish over that and say that it doesn't hurt or that it's simple. It's not simple. And it does leave you with scars. But the gospel can let you, allows you to let go of that. The gospel helps you forgive. The gospel helps us overcome conflict. We saw in our second lesson that conflict provides opportunities. It provides opportunities for us to glorify God. Conflict is, gives you an opportunity to grow to be like Christ. You ever, I mean, that would change the way you think about conflict, wouldn't it? Because everything in your life, whether it's good or bad from your perspective, is supposed to do what? It's supposed to conform you to the image of Christ. Jesus, who began a good work in you, will perform it, and he will use the circumstances in your life to, to, to hammer out the character that's going to make you like Jesus, because that's where this is all headed. And we have to see even the conflict in our life as something that's going to build that, as something that's going to make that happen. So, so conflict can be used in your life to help you glorify God and to help you grow to be like Christ. And it gives you an opportunity, lesson, the lesson, our second lesson said, to serve others. Okay? You can be a means of grace in others' lives. Conflict starts in the heart, our third lesson said. Conflict starts in the heart. And I've already, I've already alluded to that, and I think we've all gotten that, but in any given conflict, the biggest problem is not the occasion of the conflict. It's not the fact that your wife or your husband always does X. That's the occasion for the conflict. But the actual source of the conflict is your heart. James chapter 4, verses 1 to 6 tells us about that, and you can see that printed on page 11. But, but James is asking the question, what causes fights and quarrels among you? Don't they come from your husband who never picks up his socks? Don't they come from your children who aren't raising their kids the way you raise them? Does it come from your coworker who's constantly stealing credit for the idea that you thought of? Okay, the list could go on and on, and the Bible could, could say, listen, the source of conflict is all these kinds of situations, but it doesn't do that. It says, don't they come from your desires that battle in you? It comes from your desires that battle in you. You want something, but you don't get it. And that really is the definition of conflict. It's not getting what I want. 
and how I respond to not getting what I want makes all the difference. Because if, if, if responding the wrong way towards not getting what I want creates sin, what I've just revealed is that I am harboring an idol in my heart. At the heart of all conflict is idolatry. Idolatry is not just bowing down before statues of stone and wood. You all know that. Idolatry is loving and cherishing anything more than Jesus. So if Jesus is in charge of your heart, then you value him more than you value anything else. And though you may have desires that go unmet and you may be legitimately wronged, that doesn't mean the end of your happiness because your happiness isn't rooted in those unmet desires. Your happiness is met in Jesus who is really in charge. So at the heart of all, con- the heart of all conflict is idolatry. And so what we need to do, <laughs> we've said in lesson three, is we need to identify the idol in any conflict and then we need to let go of it and replace it with Jesus. I, I've got to love Jesus more than what I want from you and what I think I need from you. And sometimes those are legitimate things. And again, there's no attempt here to varnish or make that simple, but that's the reality. So in lesson four, we talked about the power for peacemaking. The power for peacemaking is the gospel which we've discussed. It gives us peace with God, and it enables us to have peace with others. And confession brings freedom. This is what we talked about last week. We talked about repentance. And repentance was defined as a change of mind that leads to a change of direction. So repentance is not getting backed into the corner so far that there's nothing I can possibly do now but admit it. Okay, we have seen that with countless celebrities and sports stars and political figures. It's deny, 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 deny until, they're, until I'm all the way back in the corner and there is no possible way for me to get out of this. And then I hold the press conference. I'm so sorry. I repent. I never should have done that. I, that wasn't me. Ever heard that? I heard it just this week. I don't know where that came from. That wasn't me. Well, yes, it was. That was you. We all saw it. That's not repentance. Repentance is a change of mind that leads to a change of of direction. In other words, repentance is saying the same thing about sin that God says about it. So when you are repenting, you are agreeing with God. And you are changing your mind about the pursuit of your sin and you are, with God's help, determining that you are going to do a 180 and you're going to head in another direction. That's what repentance is. It's not a feeling. It is a change of direction. We talked about some practical ways that we can confess. And let me just say, confession is such a freeing thing, isn't it? Okay, if, you are, if you're able to go to someone that you know you have wronged or that you have had a fight with, it's hard, isn't it? I mean, I mean, the one time that Erica, my wife, and I had a disagreement, um, it was really hard for me to admit that I was wrong that one time. Uh, long ago. 
when I was young and immature. No, it's, it's hard, okay? When we've had a disagreement about something, when we've had a discussion about something, I don't want to repent. I want her to repent. And then I can repent because I didn't do it first. And, and I feel that. And, and I'm just talking with, like, with the most minor of disagreements. But there's something in me, there's something in me that just, I don't want to do that. Because I'm going to be admitting I'm wrong, which is what I need to do. And have you ever been in that situation where you don't want to repent, but you feel this freedom when you're finally able to go to that person and admit, I was wrong? Christians, the gospel enables us to repent to one another. The gospel enables us to be, to be open with one another and to not try to have the upper hand over each other. The gospel enables us to do that because we recognize that we're all sinners and that we've all been forgiven of much. And me going to you and repenting of something shouldn't be earth-shattering news because you know I'm a sinful person anyway. And it shouldn't be that hard for me to go to you because I know you're a sinful person. I know that you sin and are in need of repentance as well. So we need to... So it was talked last week about the seven A's of confession. And I thought that those were, those were good points that, that need to be made. We need to admit specifically. We need to acknowledge the hurt. We need to ask specifically for forgiveness. We're supposed to work to change our behavior. All of those are things that, that are part of repentance. And apart, without those things, repentance is as, is as empty as, I'm sorry. I'm sorry is not repentance. I'm sorry is like, oops. And a lot of times we, we glibly do that. Oh, man, I'm sorry. My bad. Okay, that's not Repentance. Repentance is admitting what you have done wrong and, and confessing that to an individual. So that brings us up to speed. That's where, that's where we have been uh, these past five weeks. We want to look at two more subjects in the time that we have remaining today as we close out the series. We're on page 28. And page 28 is called Seeking to Gently Restore. I almost said Destroy. Seeking to gently restore. For many of us, confrontation is a four-letter word. As I've already said, it's very difficult for us to, to confess. And so when we, uh, when we do that, or I'm sorry, confront. And so when we do that, we try to change the way we do it to make it not so easy. Or t- Man, I cannot say a thing. This is what happens when you preach the morning service. We, we try to make it easier on ourselves. We try to make it that, so it's not so hard to confront one another. And so we will do this in a variety of ways. One of those is the passive-aggressive way of confrontation. Do have any passive-aggressives in here? Anybody, anybody willing to admit that? Okay. There are <laughs> one. There's an honest person. Uh, another one. All right, no more hands. I don't want to know. <laughs> uh, we've got passive-aggressive people among us. I don't usually handle things that way. I 
tend to be more abrupt and confrontational and sometimes in a negative way. So that's my problem. But there, there have been times when I've gone the passive-aggressive route. And I'm going to share one of these things with you. So, because a lot of times, you know, teachers make themselves the hero of the story. Like, I'm definitely not the hero of this story. This is just a simple thing, but I work another job. I work part-time for the church, but I work another job part-time. I used to work that job full-time. And there was somebody that worked for me and a group of people that I managed, and I gave them a job to do. And um, I told them, they, they started explaining to me, it was something um, in Excel, in a spreadsheet on a computer. And I was explaining to them um, when I needed it done and how I wanted them to do it. And they were like, no, 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 that's not the way to do it. And I'm telling them, okay, I think I know the best way to do this. I think I know the fastest way to do this. So I think I didn't tell him you have to do it this way, but this is the way I'm saying you got to do it. Well, this, this person didn't want to do it that way. And rather than just saying, I know the deadline, I know how long it's going to take for you to do it your way, and I know how long it's going to take for me to do it my way, I want you to do it my way. Now, in a job situation, as someone's boss, you can do that. You can't always do that in, in all the <laughs> points of conflict that you have. <laughs> okay, but that's, that's the, the option I had. So what did I choose to do instead? I chose to teach this individual a lesson. And here's how I chose to do that. I went back to my desk, and I did it my way. But I didn't tell them that I was going to do it. So I did the job, and I let them spend literally the entire day doing it their way. And they came back to me that night. They finally got it done. And they said, hey, I got it done. And I said, sorry, I already, uh, I already sent it off. OK, you're looking at me like I'm a horrible person. I know you've done stuff like that before. <laughs> the gospel frees me to be able to do that in front of you. Okay, but that's the passive-aggressive ag way with dealing with conflict because what I wanted was that for that person to waste their time all the day and finally see that I was right. I wanted to confront them with the fact that, see, I was right. I got it done a few hours short of the time it took you. You were wrong, and now look what happened to you. You've wasted your entire day. That's really bad. But that's what I did. It wasn't last week. It's been a while. But that's the way I dealt with conflict. And this person happened to be a believer. So it's, it's even, I had even more grounds to be able to confront this person about the way they were, the way they were working. We uh, often are afraid to confront. Confronting is hard because it's uncomfortable. And as, a, as at the top of the page, it says, confrontation has a negative connotation for many of us. It conjures up notions of heated arguments and debates. But we all need to be confronted from time to time for our own good to help and restore us when we've done wrong. Confrontation can be a very good thing. In fact, as believers, the New Testament tells us over and over again that we not only should... Uh, not only that we should confront one another, but that we, we're all able to do that. A couple of weeks ago, we looked at in our morning worship service, Romans chapter 15 and verse 14, which says, I am convinced, my brothers, that you yourselves are full of goodness, complete in knowledge, and competent to instruct one another. And that word for instruct is used in a variety of ways. It's translated in a variety of ways throughout the New Testament. 
it's used in Colossians chapter 3 and verse 16 this way. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, be word-centered people, as you teach, and here's our word, admonish one another with all wisdom. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 and verse, uh, verse uh, 14 translates the word as warn. We urge you, brothers, warn those who are idle. Encourage the timid, help the weak, be patient with everyone. We see these, this word of instruct, warn, admonish. And what we're talking about is the believer's responsibility to lovingly confront. And confrontation is defined for us in that first paragraph. The second to the last sentence says, the Greek word that is translated by those terms means loving confrontation with the truth for the purpose of change. Loving confrontation with the truth for the purpose of change. That's what confrontation is. So a lot of times, and we need to get this, okay, because we need to get this part of the definition. A lot of times, confrontation for us is fixing you. Okay, so my only, my only desire in this situation in which I'm confronting you is to make this situation go away because ultimately I'm confronting you for my own purposes. Okay, I'm confronting you because it benefits me. I don't want to have this kind of drama in my life, and so I want you to change. You better change because it's bothering me, or I'm not getting what I want. But, but confrontation, biblically speaking, is done not just for my own good, but for the good of the person that I'm speaking to. So in, in situations in which we are having conflict with people, we have, to, we have to love each other enough to actually speak to them about it rather than ignore them so that they know we're mad at them or do some other sort of manipulation to try to get them to change. We have to lovingly confront each other with truth for the purpose of change. That does not always mean that the person is going to change and that's why it's important that we get the definition right. Because if we get the definition wrong, then we're thinking, okay, I've got to move on to plan B after I've lovingly confronted this t- person. Because if you've ever talked to somebody and confronted them with something, like at least half the time, they're not very pleased with you. That's just the way it is. We don't take criticism well at all. And so we're like, okay, I tried the, tried the Bible way. Now let's move on to the effective way, which is me manipulating you. <laughs> And that's not what we're supposed to be doing. Confrontation is loving confrontation with the, with the per, for the purpose of change, not for our own best interests, but in the best interests of the other person. So look at number one, the circumstances of confrontation. When should we confront? <clears throat> when should we confront? And you can see the first point there says that we should confront... Switch back here to my notes... We should confront, you must approach someone when they believe you have wronged them. You must approach someone when they believe that you have wronged them. Usually, that's not what we do. Usually, we try to take the approach of, I don't don't care what they think. I know I didn't do anything to them. What are you whining about? What are you crying about? 
And so rather than going through, we, we justify our lack of going to that person by the fact that in our minds, we haven't done anything. And so there's no need to try to, to, to bridge this gap. There's no, try, no need to try to heal this relationship. The Bible actually doesn't teach us to do that. Whether a person has a legitimate gripe against you or not, if they do, it is our responsibility, your responsibility, to be the peacemaker instead of waiting for them to make the move first. Hey, if they've got a problem with me, come to me. Have we said that before? You've got a problem with me, come to me. I'm not going to you. Okay? But the Bible actually doesn't tell us to do that. You can see there in Matthew 5, verses 23 to 24, it says, If you are offering your gift at the altar, and there remember that your brother has something against you, doesn't say whether it's legitimate or not. You just remember that your brother has something against you. Leave your gift there in front of the altar. First, go and be reconciled to your brother. Then come and offer your gift. Now, obviously, this was... this passage was spoken before Jesus had died. So the sacrificial system is in in full swing still for for the Jews. And what Jesus is telling his listeners is that worship, true worship, is a call to place interpersonal reconciliation before outward ritual. A call to to put interpersonal reconciliation ahead of outward ritual. In other words, if there, you can, there, are, if there can be all kinds of problems going on, but you can outwardly doing, be doing the right ritual. You're going to church, you're doing the stuff you ought to do. And Jesus was telling his listeners, that's actually not the right, case, not the right order. You need to be reconciled to someone, even if you think that you have done them no wrong. You need to do that because Jesus has commanded it. You need to do it for your own peace of mind because you know that something's out there, that there's something between you and this other brother or sister. And you need to do it because you have a genuine concern for their well-being. Okay? Bitterness will rip you apart. In some of your own hearts and lives, Bitterness has ripped you apart. And you want to be the kind of person that as much as is is within your power, you want to prevent that from happening to others in what their perception of you. You want to care enough about them that you don't want to see their heart become a poisoned well of bitterness. So you need to approach people if they, believe that if they believe that you've wronged them. You need to go to them and try to reconcile the situation. Letter B, you may approach someone when you believe they have wronged you. Matthew 18 and verse 15 says, If your brother sins against you, go and show him his fault just between the two of you. If he listens to you, you have won your brother over. Okay? You don't have to, but if you believe that you have been wronged, you may go to a brother or sister and, and just explain the situation to them. Say, lovingly, uh, I see this going on in our relationship, and I want to talk about it. You can do that. And many times, for the good of the other person, you ought to do that. But letter C says, you may choose to overlook a wrong committed against you. 1 Corinthians chapter 6 and verse 8 says, why not rather be wronged? Why not rather be cheated? 
This is a tough one. But what was going on in 1 Corinthians chapter 6 is that the believers in Corinth were, were suing each other, basically. You know, we think we're the first, society, first litigious society that's ever existed and that we're constantly suing each other over the hotness of the coffee that's been handed through the drive through window. We're not the only people that do that. And in fact, in Corinth, there were, there were some petty believers who were, who were involving the court's systems and resolving the conflicts that they had with one another. And Paul was telling them, listen, wouldn't it be better for the testimony of Christ that you just absorb the wrong that's been done to you? Okay, he doesn't command that in every sort of situation we should always absorb the wrong that's done. Okay? Certainly not. There are very clear cases where when wrong is done, the court systems need to be involved. It's not optional. But when somebody here wrongs you, are you able to overlook that? Sometimes we ought to be able to because we're sinners. And we wrong each other frequently because we're sinners. And if we're constantly holding our wrongs against each other, it's going to split us up. If, if, if you see yourself, if I have to see myself as the confrontation police, because there is always the conf- there's always that guy that, that wants to tell you all the things that you've done wrong. And he's not doing it in a loving way, and he's not doing it uh, because, because he wants there to be real change. He's doing it because he set himself up as the guy that tells everybody else what's wrong. There's always that guy. But we should, at times, overlook the wrongs that are committed against us. In fact, 1 Peter chapter 4 and verse 8 says that love can cover a multitude of sins. And as we saw a couple of weeks ago in the sermon and then in our community group last night, love covering a multitude of sins does not always mean that we overlook them. And that's why confrontation is necessary. Look again at James chapter 5, verses 19 and 20. James chapter 5, verses 19 and 20, because we talked about this in our community group last week. But James 5, 19 and 20 says, My brothers, if one of you should wander from the truth, and someone should bring him back, remember this. Whoever turns a sinner away from the, turns a sinner from the error of his way will save him from death and cover a multitude of sins. So sometimes... Oftentimes, the most loving thing that you can do for a person is to show them the error of their way. Because they're going a direction that is destructive. And sometimes what we have to do is we have to separate our own personal feelings from the situation and care enough about that individual to love them enough to turn them back. That's the loving kind of confrontation that we're supposed to, to, to follow as believers. So, in the five minutes that we have left, I'm going to speed through these things. The criteria for confrontation. First of all, is it dishonoring to God? Is it dishonoring to God? In 1 Corinthians chapter 5, the church at Corinth was allowing a grossly immoral and disgusting situation in their church. And Paul rebukes them in scripture for the rest of generations to see and tells them that this is a blight 
on the name of Christ, and that they are immediately to, re- to rebuke this person. So confrontation needs to happen when someone is bringing down the name of Christ. We have a responsibility to one another if someone is doing harm to the name of Christ to lovingly care for that person enough to bring that to their attention. B, is it damaging your relationship? There are certain things that can be overlooked, as I've already said. But sometimes there are small things that happen over and over and over again. And as, t- as time goes on, they build up and they serve to damage the relationship. And this happens between husbands and wives. This is what splits people apart. Because they never deal with anything. And there's these little things that damage the relationship over a period of time, over and over and over and over again, until finally you get to the point where they can't stand the sound of their spouse in the other room. We need to deal with those kinds of things we need, if it's damaging the relationship. Is it hurting others? Is it hurting others? That's another reason when someone's sin is hurting those around them, that's another reason for confrontation. Even Peter, the Apostle Peter, is rebuked, again, in Scripture, for generations of people to read afterwards, is rebuked in Scripture by Paul in Galatians chapter 2. He receives a strong rebuke by Paul because he was, going, he was refusing fellowship for people who were refusing to follow the Old Testament law. The, the Gentile Christians, the non-Jews, the people, people who didn't have a Jewish background were being excluded from fellowship between Jews that had been converted because they hadn't undergone all the rites that Jews thought they should have. And Peter, under pressure, starts going along with that and withholding fellowship from this group of people. And, I mean, if you want to read Galatians chapter 2, you want to talk about a strong rebuke? Paul delivers a very strong rebuke, very strongly confronts Peter. Why? It's just overeating, right? No. It was damaging others. It was damaging the gospel. So, fourthly, we need to ask ourselves this criteria for confrontation. Is it hurting the offender? We need to make sure that we are not enablers. Sometimes we enable people in their sin in the name of love. And sometimes the most loving thing that we can do is stop someone from continuing and from hurting themselves. So let's turn the page. And I'll just summarize, summarize it all with this. Forgiving and forgetting. I'm going to talk a little bit about forgiveness. I'll summarize all the passages that are there under point one by saying this. What you and I have to realize is that the Bible tells us that we have been forgiven much. God has forgiven you more than a lifetime of what you will ever forgive anyone else for. And God has promised to separate your sins from you as far as the east is from the west. In other words, you can't measure the difference, uh, the distance between God and your sin. Does that mean that God is no longer aware of your sin, that he really has forgotten? Is it possible for God to forget? No. God knows everything. 
He can't forget anything. But what it does mean is that God is choosing not to hold your sins against you. That's biblical forgiveness. And people who have really come to grasp the depth of their sin and the nature of the forgiveness they've been given in Christ are people who are then free to turn and forgive. Because forgiveness is not easy. It's not easy. And we're hesitant to forgive sometimes because if I forgive, I'm relinquishing my rights on you. Okay? One of the reasons we don't want to forgive is because I want you to pay. And if, you don't, if I don't get you to pay, then I'll feel like I haven't gotten my pound of flesh. That's often why we don't want to forgive. And one of the things that can really help us with that is realizing that when you forgive a brother or a sister in Christ, you're not doing so at the expense of, of justice. Because Jesus absorbed on the cross every bit of justice for their sin than you could ever inflict in a lifetime of justice inflicting. Jesus absorbed it all. It's not that the sin just gets swept under the rug. Sin was dealt with at the cross. And it's not my responsibility to make people pay. Because Jesus has taken the payment for them. So forgiveness is not, at the bottom of the page, a feeling. If you're going to wait until you feel like forgiving a person... You will wait probably till your dying day. But forgiveness isn't about a feeling. Forgiveness is not forgetting. You can't forget wrongs. Some, some of the wrongs that have been done to you are terrible, unspeakable, affect you to this day. You wake up every day remembering them. It's not that you can forget them, and it's not as if they don't happen, and that they will never affect you. Forgiveness is not forgetting. Forgiveness is not excusing. When someone comes to you and, re- and says, I'm sorry, or repents to you, it's not okay to just say, okay, no problem. Well, that's what we often do. Even when we've been deeply wrong, we say, you know what, don't worry about it. It's no problem. That's not forgiving. That's saying, yeah, you're, it's not a big deal. Sin is a big deal. We don't excuse sin. But what we do, what forgiveness is, and we'll finish with this, forgiveness is a promise that, like God, I will not dwell on this incident. I will not let it fester in my mind. I will not replay over and over again all the things that I wish I could say to you. Forgiveness is a promise to not dwell on the incident. Forgiveness is a promise that I will not bring this incident up again and use it against you. God could use your sin as a weapon against you. In fact, that's what Satan does. He constantly comes back to you and says, remember what you are? And we can do that to each other. Remember what you did? I do. But forgiveness is not bringing an incident up again. Forgiveness is a promise that I will not speak to others about this incident, and forgiveness is a promise that I will not let this incident stand between us or hinder our personal relationship. Difficult things here? But the gospel is the key because the gospel makes us people who are able to forgive. And I pray 
that we will lovingly deal with the conflict in our lives for the glory of God and the good of those around us, the good of our own souls. Let's pray.